Let's talk about something that's happened to you within the last 24 hours that will make it common to all of us. I'm talking about disappointment because you have been disappointed in somebody in a relationship within the last 24 hours. Now, maybe, perhaps, some of you have have had a really special day and you haven't been disappointed, but in the last 48 hours, nevertheless, I'm sure that you can think back to your most recent interactions with somebody and somehow you have been disappointed with someone. And so I want to talk about that today in the podcast. Welcome to Your Daily Drive. I am Rick Thomas. I'm so glad that you are here. What I'm going to share with you is written out for you in a 2,000-plus word article that you are welcome to read if you want to. And as always, I have embedded articles inside of these, and so you can do a whole lot of reading or a whole lot of listening if you wish. The title of this podcast is What to Do When Your Spouse Disappoints You. Now, that's how I'm going to share this podcast. That is the unique angle that I'm going to come at this idea of disappointment But as you listen, you will quickly understand that you can apply this to any relationship. It doesn't have to be a spouse. I'm just using the marriage as an illustration to to use as an illustration. But the concepts that I'm going to share with you are applicable to any relationship that you have. And so if you are a teenager and you're struggling with someone, if you are married, of course, if you are parent to child, child to parent, within the church, always there's conflict there. Maybe it's in your work environment. It doesn't matter. Just pick a relationship, and you can listen to the story here, but I really want you to focus in on the concepts, because the truth is every relationship will be a disappointing one to some degree. There's no avoiding of this. We're fallen people living in a fallen world among other fallen people. How can you how can you get through a day or two or get through a week without being disappointed by someone? It is unavoidable. And so the key to living well with others begins by having an attitude of forgiveness toward offenders. This idea of forgiveness or unforgiveness is one of the most important practical concepts that you will ever apply to your life. We need to be walking around all the time with an attitude of forgiveness. And if you train yourself this way, then when you look at a disappointing situation, you won't start Immediately, your impulse won't be to jump on the other person initially. You'll always address your heart first, and that will set you up. That will provide a foundation from which you can stand and work redemptively in somebody's, uh, somebody's life. But a part of that foundation is this attitude of forgiveness. It is, it's not just implied in the gospel. It is explicit in the gospel. God is a forgiving God even while we were sinners. And so a vital key to living well with others begins by having this attitude of forgiveness, especially toward those who hurt you. And you develop this mindset by realizing how God extended his mercy to you when you did not deserve it. That really needs to be a fixation in your life. And again, 
If you can become fixated this way, then any response or reaction that you have toward other people will be a heart of forgiveness. Now, it doesn't mean when I when I say this, having this attitude of forgiveness, I'm not saying that you don't deal with whatever's wrong with the other person or whatever's wrong in the relationship. Having an attitude of forgiveness doesn't mean you are a doormat. It doesn't mean you're milk toast. It doesn't mean that that you are passive in your interactive relationships. No, I just did a podcast. In fact, the, the last podcast that I did was hiding behind grace to avoid the hard things because sometimes some people use this idea of extending grace as a it is a way for them to disguise their fears because they don't want to interact get engaged in people's lives and so i'm not saying that we're not passive we're always gospel aggressors but our starting point must be an attitude of forgiveness or we won't get the gospel right and when we engage others we won't get that right either And so, yeah, we do engage what is wrong in our culture and what is wrong in other people's lives, but we do it with the heart motivation, and forgiveness is is an excellent start. Let me share the story of my friend Bilf and Mabel. I'll start with Mabel. As a child, she came from an abusive and dysfunctional family. And I listened to her story. I was holding back tears. She talked about the anger and chaos that she experienced as a child. Initially, she hoped her parents would change. Disappointed by an unchanging family, she began thinking about a future without them. That happens, you know. You hope and hope. You may pray. You definitely cry. Of course, you worry a lot about your parents changing. And then after you get older and you begin to give up on that, and it's no longer about them changing it's more about you looking for that day when you can exit from from your relationship with the family dynamic, the chaotic family dynamic in which you were raised. And that's what happened to Mabel. By the time she was 13, she had seen her door of opportunity. Her body was changing, and with it came unexpected attention from boys. Code note to all girls everywhere. Boys are hormones in tennis shoes, and they are attracted by what they see, more by what they see than what they feel. And they will, uh, you will get their attention. You will capture their gaze. And so she began to realize this, that this unexpected attention that she was receiving, and she dismissed her impure motives as well as theirs. Because her desires for love and acceptance were stronger than any imagined consequences that may come to her because she was dabbling. She was getting ready to cross the line on the, on the wild side. A note to all you boys out there. There are a lot of girls that come from very difficult familial uh, context, and, and they are ready. They are looking for love, and they want to be accepted by someone. Don't use that as a manipulative weapon to get what you want. Don't use that to hurt these girls because they're vulnerable this way, because of the shaping influences that are in their lives. A guy's gaze woke up things in in her heart that she had never felt before. To be loved and to be fought over was a radical departure from how her family treated her. And Mabel was a quick study. It didn't take long to figure out how to draw attention to herself 
from guys. She became a flirtatious teenager. That was the beginning of the end for her. She started marking the days until her knight in shining armor showed up. The future hope with a true lover. That's what kept her going. She never perceived how her natural beauty would set her up for future failure. Mabel's longings for a better life and anger toward her parents, that's the mixture right there. You're craving something so badly, and then you have this hostility toward those who have treated you poorly, specifically your parents, and it blinded her from the wisdom that she needed to know what a better life could be like for her. And a better life definitely was not the one that she was heading, that the path that she was heading down. Cravings for affection and security and a heart of anger overpowered sound thinking. She was justified in her mind and she was stubborn in her attitude. It was only a matter of time before she would jump into the frying pan or jump from the frying pan into the fire. By the time she was 18, she had slept with six guys. Sex was the bait that she used to manipulate love from guys. It was all that she knew. I have an article here. It's one of the more popular articles on our website. It's titled, Sex Before Marriage Leads to a Trail of Tears. I would really appeal to you to read that article or listen to that podcast because it is a common denominator with most married couples. When they have marriage dysfunction, the majority of them have sex before marriage as a part of their complicating problems. And this is what happened to Mabel as well. Her cousin introduced her to Biff. Biff seemed different from the other guys that she had met. He was sweet. He was considerate. He was patient. I, I tell young people whenever they will listen to me that you'll never see a guy shopping on Amazon looking for how to get a girl book. I just need to know how to get a girl. We have that gene in us. We know how to get a girl. Be kind. Be nice. Be sweet. Be considerate. Be patient. Don't be how you normally are. I've described it in other at other times as as the people who date, they are representatives of themselves. They're not their true selves, but they represent themselves. They are a carefully edited, carefully crafted version of themselves, the sweet kind, the considerate kind, the patient kind. Every boy knows this intuitively. That's how you get a girl, and that's what every girl wants, some version of that. Mabel particularly liked the fact that Biff opened the door for her, the car door. And the clincher was how different he was from her dad. This is the reactionary marriage. You look at your dad and see all the things that you don't want, and you marry someone who is opposite from that, but yet they have another side to them that you never factor into. From Mabel's perspective, Biff was the perfect catch. It did not register with her that sleeping together was a definite warning sign. What is the warning sign? Well, okay, Bill was sweet, he was considerate, he was patient, he would open the car door and he would sleep with her, he would fornicate. There is a problem there. You run all that through a biblical filter and what would come out on the other end is a whole lot of danger and you better stay away. But Mabel's desire for love blinded her from seeing a trail of future tears that would lead to so much conflict in her marriage. She was smitten immediately. Within nine months, they were married. They received little guidance about their courtship. 
Their marriage counseling was three sessions and a personality test. It felt right. Mabel could not imagine her marriage to Biff being anything like her childhood. Besides, he loved her. That's what he said. The guy who loved her was the one that was crawling over God's word to get in bed with her. It would be more fair to say that he lusted after her. He didn't love her, not biblical love. Mabel's parents were thankful that she met a nice guy. Let me go back to that sweet, considerate, and patient, and car door-holding guy. Her daddy was more excited about the wedding because he did not have to provide for her any longer. What a guy. But he did grumble about coughing up two grand for the wedding. Their marriage was in trouble from the beginning. Two selfish, needy people who had no template for a biblical marriage joined each other and became one flesh. The disappointment was on its way. Within six months of marriage, Mabel learned her knight had tarnished armor. Biff had an ongoing texting relationship with an ex-flame. Mabel was devastated and livid. She felt betrayed, and she should because she was. Biff did a number on her. Mabel hoped Biff would rescue her from her horrid past. Biff was her ticket to a better life. That is the betrayal that she was experiencing. But what she did not factor into her plan was the fallenness of her husband. Perhaps he was sweet and considerate and patient and holding the the car open. But as I said earlier, you marry the opposite of your daddy and you like all these good things about this person, but he has another side. And now Mabel was experiencing the other side, the fallenness of her husband. And though she tacitly agreed that all humans are sinners, it did not matter as long as it was not Biff's fallenness interfering with her dreams, but that is exactly what was happening. Yeah, I know that people are fallen. I get that. I can pass that on a Theology 101 exam. But the problem is, is that my spouse's fallenness is affecting me. Mabel was not interested in what God was writing into her life. She was writing her story according to her deepest longings, cravings, and desires. And the bigger your longings, cravings, and desires are, the more disappointed you are going to be. The title of Mabel's story was, Somebody Will Love Me the Way I Won't Love. When she found out about Biff's escapades with an ex-flame, she was devastated. She was also unwilling to forgive him. In her mind, Biff could not commit a worse sin. She asked for a particular kind of knight, one who would love her and meet her deepest longings. Her daddy defrauded her, as well as her teenage lovers, and now her husband is a fraud. She went to great lengths to find the perfect man. The need for love was her reason for why she played the field. It was ironic that she did not see her sin in the same light as she judged her hum- uh, husband's sin. Whenever a person has an idol in their life, they will never be able to see things biblically. And I want you to think about this, and I also want you to be careful how you communicate this, because remember, this is a podcast. This is an article. It's 2,000 words, and you're, you're not going to have that kind of conversation with somebody that you're talking to. You're going to have thousands of words in a conversation with them. We're streamlining things here, and though you're hearing things in a streamlined way, you don't communicate them in a streamlined way. 
And so I'm giving you factual information, but this is not how we communicate in a counseling session. But she has an idol in her, in her life, and because of that, she cannot see things biblically. She can only see things through her self-centered, and no matter how she got there, but through her self-centered worldview, Mabel's craving for love, which was lust, blinded her from seeing what she needed to see. She was on dangerous ground. Mabel saw gradations of sin. That's how she saw sin, especially when she thought about what Biff did. Though sinfulness can be different consequentially, yeah, there are gradations consequentially, but it's also true that all sin is the same especially when it comes to how we consider another person. Mabel would not allow herself to see herself as the same as Biff, another human in need of grace. Her deficient thinking was because she did not care about how God viewed their marriage. She primarily cared about what she was not able to get from her husband. We're all sinners we're all needing grace. And I, let me go back again. I, I realize consequentially that sins are different. I mean, if you, if, if you get frustrated with somebody in a moment of disappointment versus beating up somebody, consequentially, those are two different things. But in another context, they're also equal. Either one of those sins would put Christ on the cross. We're all sinners needing grace. There is no biblical warrant to look down on another person as though one person is better than the other. What have you received that was not given to you? And if it was given to you, why do you act like that you have, that it is yours and that you have earned it? When you or I do this, it's unmitigated self-righteousness, elevating ourselves above another person. Looking down on another person, it is self-righteousness. We're not equal. This, this idea of all ground is level at the foot of the cross is not true in this context because there's self-righteousness in play. Looking down on another human, they sin differently from you, but sin is sin in this context. God will not bless this thinking, no matter how justified we want to think ourselves to be. Only a correct view of the gospel can keep our hearts aligned and humble before God and others. When Mabel found out about Bill's flirtation, she was devastated, as well she should be. Yes, she should hurt. It should be a profound hurt. I have experienced this hurt, by the way. From her perspective, there was no hope that their marriage would experience restoration. There were some things she could overlook, but anything that mitigated her craving for love and affection from her husband was the unpardonable sin. Few discipling situations are more challenging than a sinning victim. And I want you to listen slowly here because I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. Mabel was a sinner, and Bill sinned against her which made her a victim too. Mabel is a victim. Biff sinned against her. But she's also culpable for her actions, for her own part that she's played in this tragedy. As a discipler, you want to carefully understand her angst while, in fact, empathetically listening to the anger, the hurt, the fear that comes from a person like Mabel. It is real, it's painful, it's dark. Mabel does have a point. Biff is a jerk, and you want to give her time. You want to give her space to be able to communicate those things so that she can share how, where she is 
at this moment in her heart and how she is struggling and how she feels and how she is experiencing the devastation of the betrayal. I've shared the story before. When I went through this, there was a time when I, I could not be consoled, and my friend Randy Smith came over. This was 30 years ago. He came over to my house, and and he just knelt down in the middle of the living room and prayed because he couldn't talk to me. I was not consolable. There was nothing he could say to me. I needed to work it out. I needed to get to the point to where I could hear biblical teaching. And it took a while. And you don't speed this up. One of the things, one of the mistakes that we can make in counseling is that we can want people to be where we want them to be, but that's not where they are. And so we must go to where they are and meet them where they are, just how they are. And so you want to give her appropriate time and space to weep and work through some of the worst news that she could ever hear. But then comes the discipler's tension. While you must give her space to emote and cry and process the pain, you also want to bring her heart back in line with the gospel. Be careful here. Be patient. Don't be passive, but be patient. Whether she wants to receive it or not, there is grace for what she is going through, and God is at work in their lives. You must, you must seek to position her heart to receive God's help in her time of anguish. Paul said it this way in Romans 8. He said, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Mabel must know that the father was not off in a corner, utterly oblivious to what was going on in her marriage. She needs to know that God is for her and that he has something better planned for their marriage. Mabel needs to know that there is no problem that God's grace is rendered inadequate to repair. Mabel will have to simultaneously grieve while taking her soul to the task of realigning herself with his gospel. And we do that in virtually every disappointing context. Let's say that someone, I'm, I'm thinking about you have a loved one who dies. And as that loved one dies, you need space and time and you need to grieve because of what has happened. But you know what? If you grieve too long, if you don't eventually index forward, you can become bitter, angry, frustrating, cynical, despair, depression. There's all, thing, all kinds of sins that can attach themselves to a very normal process of grieving. And so while you're grieving the loss of someone, you have to simultaneously grieve while taking your soul to task by realigning yourself to the gospel. And that's exactly what Mabel needs to do here. If she does not do this, her mind will go to places that will not profit her or glorify the Father, even to the point of looking for affection from another man. How many times has that happened? This tension is why you want to give her time and space to grieve. But to keep her out of the black hole of grief, you'll have to reframe her mind with the gospel. Take as much time as you need, but you must reorient her mind around the gospel. How do you do this? Well, I'm, I'm not sure. There's no cookie-cutter methodology here. It's a spirit thing. You want to be pneumatic. You want to walk in the spirit. You'll have to listen. You'll have to respond to the way God is guiding you while trusting him through the process of restoring Mabel's heart to the Father and to Biff. 
And then as you're thinking about Mabel and as you're caring for her, it is important that you don't forget the knight in shining armor, the tarnished armor at this point. Biff needs God's forgiveness for what he did. He also needs his wife's forgiveness. He needs Mabel's forgiveness. Biff needs the power of the cross actively working in his life to keep him from falling back into his same old sin pattern. He needs the cross to empower him to care for his wife correctly and to become the man that God wants him to be. God was merciful to Biff to expose him for what he was doing. This is one of the ways that Mabel can think about this. You, you see, Biff hadn't changed from the person that she was dating. The guy who was patient and kind and sweet and holding the car door, that other side of him, she didn't know about, but it's there. And now she realizes that after they are married, it is God's mercy that he would reveal this to her. Only God can, can forgive and sustain him through the difficulties that he has created in his marriage Mabel needs the gospel as well, but differently than how Biff does. There are three primary things she needs to know and apply to her life as it pertains to the gospel. One, she needs to feel, experience, rest in the cleansing and strengthening force that only the gospel can bring. She is hurt, and she needs Jesus like never before. Number two, she needs to know that Biff's problem is not a new one, as I was saying. Even though it may be new to her, she needs to be thankful that God, working on her behalf, has brought this to the light. And number three, she needs to know that she and Biff are in a similar boat. Biff is not a worse sinner than she is. Biff and Mabel are identically unrighteous outside of Christ, and they are identically righteous in Christ. God does not grade on a curve. The Lord graded his son on the cross, and his son had a perfect score complete. It is finished, paid for all sin. The glory of the gospel is, the, is that the Father fully approved the work of Jesus. And because Mabel and Bilf are in Jesus, they are in Christ, they are now utterly perfect in him. Neither their good practices nor their wicked actions enhance or demand, diminish their relationship with God. It's an ontological thing, not a works thing. They need to think and respond to each other similarly. Mabel will need to understand and apply this gospel truth to her life. It will be hard for her. While no one justifies or condones anyone's sin, and I would never condone what Bill has done to her, it is unbiblical to hold a person's sin against them when they have repented and are seeking to restore what they damaged. And for the sake of this podcast, I'm saying that Biff is walking out repentance. He is genuinely changing. Biff repented of his sin. He's trying to walk out his repentance before God and his wife. He will not do this correctly, but Mabel will have to forgive him as God has forgiven her of her past sins. And it's one of the things that she'll need to guard her heart against, that Bill's repentance. Nobody's repentance is perfect. Our repentance at best is imperfect repentance. And so he's going to make mistakes. What you're looking for in a person is, is not perfect repentance, but which way are they heading? Are they leaning into Christ or are they pushing away from Christ? And in this podcast, in this article, Bill is pushing into Christ. He is walking out repentance imperfectly, and Mabel will have to forgive him. Forgiveness is the only way this marriage will experience restoration. 
the way that I try to think about such things as this is to remind myself that no person has ever sinned against me the way that I have sinned against the Father. If my sin against the Lord is worse than any other, worse than any other that anyone has committed against him, then most assuredly I can forgive anything that anyone has done to me. I say if my sin against the Father is worse than any other thing that anyone has done against me, well, not if, it is worse than what anyone has done for me, then truly I can forgive anything, at least attitudinally, maybe not transactionally because they're not asking for forgiveness, but I can have an attitude of forgiveness, and that's how I led this podcast If you want to build any relationship well, if you want to interact with anyone well, you must enter into that relationship at least minimally with an attitude of forgiveness. Mabel will have to forgive Biff, and they will have to begin the long process of restoring their marriage. It'd be more accurately to say to restore their relationship, because even before the marriage, the relationship was not right. They need to restore their relationship, and if they restore their relationship, their marriage will be restored And the only way they'll be able to restore their relationship successfully is to start that process with the gospel clearly in view. The title of this podcast is What to Do When Your Spouse Disappoints You. I have some call-to-action questions that would make a good discussion with your spouse, with your relationship, whatever relationship that is, with a small group. And so if you want to look at these, go to this article on the website. I don't have time here to share these call to actions. There's five questions here. I would love for you to read them. Also, I know that your story doesn't fit perfectly inside this one. And so if you want to talk, if you have a point that you want to make or a question that you want to ask, please come to our website and ask. It would be a joy to serve you. Your Daily Drive is a production of rickthomas.net, a global community that is seeking to live more productive and inspiring lives. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please go to rickthomas.net, rickthomas.net.